Hello, I'm Dave, and shortly I'll be joined by my co-host Ash. Please be advised that the On the Pitch podcast does contain profanity. If you're offended by profanity, then you should probably find some other podcast to listen to. However, if the profanity does not bother you, please practice proper parental discretion. Greetings and salutations and welcome to another episode of the On The Pitch podcast with Dave and Ash. What's up, Ash? I'm pretty good, Dave. I'm pretty good. Um, Saturday night. We're definitely playing catch-up with these podcasts. It feels like we've recorded every day this week to give the people what they want. But a little bit of a different podcast today. We're not going to talk about world football in general, but more of the different side of it. You know, tactics and the analysis of football. So we might deep dive into how a player can get better, different types of formation, game gameplay styles, and you know something I'm told I'm good at, which is an- analyzing things on a football pitch. So, Dave, I'll let you kick this one off because you're kind of the expert in the player development area, as you're actually a coach. So, I'll let you take it away. I, I just want to make one thing clear real quick before we start. Ash really is good at analyzing. Don't let him fool you. He's being humble. <laughs> the man has an outstanding analytical viewpoint on everything that's football just so everybody knows um so yeah this podcast today is going to be about player development and just analyzing football so as i alluded to i am a youth coach um so i guess i'll go over my background real quick um i have an experience i have experience coaching the youth i hold a united states stupid federation d license i coach for ayso if you're in america you should know what that is um i've also coached semi-pro and amateur adults so that's my background and i currently am a what i call a performance coach where i work with in the where i work with individual players to help them develop their technique get better whether it's for the sunday league whether it's for high school whether it's for pro i do all that wonderful stuff so um that's basically my background. So we're going to talk about player development, which is a conversation Ash and I have had a, a bit. Actually, before we came on the pod and started recording, Ash and I were confabulating about player development, analytics, because I came home from a match earlier today with uh, my U12, U12 girl side, and I was very happy because we got a good result. The manager was brilliant. Uh, and the team that I'm currently on staff with, I'm one of three coaches, so I'm an ass- I'm one of two assistants. And I was there this morning with the gaffer who did a brilliant, it must be said, there's a brilliant job day in and day out with the girls practicing and helping them develop. So I guess we had this conversation pre-pod, and it's basically what fabricated the idea to base the pot around player develop- player development and just analyzing football. So in this pod, too, I'll give, you know, just a quick overview of how the U.S. does things as far as player development, what I think is wrong, what needs to be fixed. And then Ash is going to go more into analytics at some point. 
So with that being said, let's get into how the United States Stupid Federation, and if I'm saying this properly, it's the United States Soccer Federation, but I digress. Um, how they view player development and what I think is wrong with that model. I will say this, Ash. I know Alex and I have actually had this conversation a bunch of being in America and seeing how football works here, and he and I shaking our heads at it because the system, in a sense, is broken. So we'll start at the youth level because that's where I'm at right now. So they have this thing where you go to coaching coaches and they teach what's called the play practice play model, which I want to say was developed in France. It was either France or the Netherlands is where the idea actually came from. And then what the USSF did was they reconstructed their curriculum and started try trying to inculcate this into youth coaches. When I went for my D license earlier this year, they beat the drum with this. So basically play practice play is a period where the children come in and you have them play small-sided games first. No structural technical work, just straight, you know, as they're arriving to training, have them play a small-sided match. So it looks something like where, you know, one child arrives, you have them maybe work on dribbling, getting touches. As another player arrives, maybe that becomes a 1v1. Another player arrives, maybe becomes a 2v1 or a 1v2, depending on what you're working on that day. Because generally you want to have a topic and then – what you do with that is you try to use what they call the keywords, and that's that seed you plant that sets the tone for the rest of the for the rest of your training session, which in theory is a good idea. And that's not where my issue is. My issue comes later on because after they have that first session of training of that small sided that small sided game, you want to start asking what they call guided questions that are in relation to your topic. And I that part I get, that's smart. So, for example, if there are players and let's say you're working on overload, so you have a 2v1 in that small-sided game to start training with, you might ask one player, so how would you find space? Where's the space? And you would give them an opportunity to think about it and answer the question. That's all fine. You may ask the defender, too, how would you close the person who's attacking? How do you close the ball down? And you use those questions, and the idea is to guide them to the correct air quotes that anybody, everybody cannot see to the correct answer and you build off that. So then after that, the next piece is you go into your actual topic. So if it's overloads, you would do something to the tune of maybe a small sided match where you can have, let's say, a, a 5v4 and you have that extra person, you have that extra player so in essence, you're trying to teach the, the children how to overload one side and then create chances from overloading. And then to close the session, you would go into a full-blown small-sided game. So for us, it would be a 9v9 at the end of training because that's the, the standard here for under 12s. Now, here's my issue with this, is that there's no proper technical training throughout that whole thing, and I think that hurts the players. And I saw it today at my match. The girls understand what part of the foot to pass with in certain situations. Like, they know when to use the laces to drive for the driven passes. They know to use the inside of their foot for the shorter, quicker passes. But the problem is that the technique is not there, and this is my beef with the Federation. Somewhere in there, we have to put some type of technical work. I understand there's an argument between, well, you don't want to go back to the old school way of thinking where it's authoritative, where the coach has all the answers, you're doing all the instructions. 
and drill work doesn't do it because they can't they're not taught to tactically ponder and come up with the solutions for the questions being asked during a match but here's the thing though if you're devoid of technical training then how are they going to know how to accurately pass that ball for let's say how are they going to start to understand okay maybe this pass with the inside of the foot requires less pace or maybe i need to hit it with more strength to put more weight behind it trying to drive it and this is what i've struggled with in my coaching development is how do we you the model is effective in a sense but how do we tie in the technical part to it and that's my beef with the ussf's model like we have to put technical work in whether it's in the form of a technical warm-up or maybe somewhere between that initial play phase before you get into that small-sided exercise to emulate match-like situations put some technical work in there make it a technical game and that's that's something that I've learned under uh, under the coach now who I'm working with is that's what he likes to do is we do have the girls doing some technical work. However, I just don't think it's stressed enough because they make it seem like drill work's bad, but it's not. You spend five to ten minutes maybe just drilling in that technique, and then you can move on to that small-sided game or ex training exercise to emphasize whatever topic that you're working on. And then they'll be armed with the technique. And with that, then we can start working on developing tactically astute players because the technique at the end of the day is still everything. You, you can know the tactics, but if you don't know how to do something simple as pass the ball correctly, tactics are worth dick at that point, aren't they? I think for football, when you really bring it down, you have to have the physical side of it, which is your stamina, your strength, mm -hmm. your speed. All of those things are important and they come in with the fitness training. Because when I used to play, we did the fitness training. It, we, it, we start with the fitness training at the start of the session, you know, to build up stamina, to get, into, to get get your blood going, get your energy. And then it will move on to, like you said, that technical side of the thing, like your passing, you know, your set pieces, the way you header a football, the way you shoot, the way you pass, all of those technical things that you will not succeed as a player without. Because it's okay having possession of the ball, but what if, you, what if you're passing it wrong? You're going to be robbed. Mm -hmm. What if you don't? You know, because when I put a crossing in, there's different types of crosses. And depending on where you are on the pitch and where you, if you want to be an in-swinger, out-swinger, you know, driven cross, high cross, low cross. This is all the stuff that, because sometimes if you're playing with a, let's say you're playing with a five foot six striker, and this is where my analytical brain comes into things, you can't be swinging in crosses to a five foot six striker if they're up against two six mm -hmm. foot plus centre backs. And then you wouldn't be really putting crosses in at all unless you had overload in the box and were playing along the floor, ground crosses. So I think that's the thing with Chelsea. So if we can relate this to a real life situation, if you look at Chelsea, like a lot of the time this season, we've been putting crosses into the box for Timo Werner, whereas Werner's not exactly great in the air. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's the sort of games when Giroud should have been played or Tammy Abraham. I mean, Kai Havertz is pretty good in the air. But, you know, it's, it's difficult aiming for one player when you've got three or four defenders around you. And sometimes it will come off, yes, but they've still got, then got to direct that ball towards the goal, away from the keeper. And when you're surrounded by those players and it's just you and you have to get the head on the balls to start with, out jump the centre-back and then try and find a corner, it just makes it so much diff more difficult. But when you, when you start putting more players in the box, and let's talk about crossing for now as it is still a technical attribute. As we're on, when you have you know a big a two or three big men in the box and you overload the box, 
even if your first cross fails and it hits and it, you know, it ping pongs in the box, if it falls to one of the three or four players that you've got in the box, and you've got a chance to score. Mm-hmm. So that's, why, that's why for me, from what you were saying with the technique and everything, and I'll use, like I said, we're using crossing as the example, the type of cross you use is so important in a certain scenario. I mean, if it's the last, you know, you're 1-0 down, it's the 89th minute, you throw everybody forward because, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You can lose 2-0. Or is you, the best thing you equalise, the worst thing you lose 2-0 and you've lost nothing anyway. Um, Sometimes crossing won't be the answer. Sometimes it will be playing quick balls centrally in a narrow system to get your quick and agile players on the ball to stretch the defence. And we've seen that in real life plenty of times. You know, the faster players, they'll use their speed to pull defences apart, create space for themselves, get round the back or running behind, break the offside trap, and they'll have a one-on-one with the goalkeeper. And in these situations, it is so important to play to your team strengths. If you've got a certain tactic or a formation you like to play, but it doesn't suit your players, it won't end well. It's not just about the players adapting, it's the manager adapting to the players he's got as well. Yep. yep. And that's what I don't think people quite understand because obviously every manager has their own philosophy of how to play football, but you still need certain types of player to play that stuff. So the Spanish style, for example, which everybody knows is Chiqui Taco, is outdated, I don't like it, but... You need a certain type of, you need those players that maybe not necessarily quick, but the very, very technical players like Barcelona have had in Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta, you know, all of those sorts of players. And people on this thing will know I'm not a fan of Barcelona. I, I despise the club. But you can't deny how good those three players are. Or worth or two of them are still playing, but how good they were at what they did. But you couldn't expect someone like Paul Scholes to play that ticker tackle because it wasn't his game. And that's no disrespect to Paul Scholes, just Paul Scholes was a pass master, but he'd play those long passes looking for the strikers. And he was brilliant at finishing. Finishing, you know, He'd score goals for fun from range and edge of the box. Whereas Xavi and Iniesta, that wasn't their game. And that's why Barcelona played Tiki Taka and Man United didn't. So it's about playing to your player strengths. And then once you've been there a little while, you can develop these players and you can teach them new things, how to play a different style. And for some players, they'll be able to adapt and some won't. And that's where transfers come in. You can get a player that doesn't suit your style, maybe. Or, you know, if they're not in your plans, you sell them and you bring in a player that you want that can do what you want to do. And I think this is a thing that is so, you know, me and you have spoken about this. It's so detailed and it's so fine that it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of preparation to put into this. And that's how, that's the difference between winning or losing at the end of the day. It's the effort and the tactics you're willing to put in and and what you put in, you'll get out. I concur. I guess going back to like youth football, I feel as if the federation, as far as technique goes, it feels like technique is, it's like technique is being held in abeyance in order to create tactically astute players. But at the same time, like, the technique needs to be there. So effort, right, is, is a big thing. You mentioned effort. So today, you mentioned, actually, let me, let me rewind real quick. You mentioned conditioning, and then you mentioned effort. So the girls do a great job at pressing and busting their ass on a football pitch because in training, the gaffer ensures that he does a lot of conditioning with and without the ball. And he, uh, the way he, I, I am a fan of the way he does it because he sprinkles it in. 
at different points of tra in training so that they're still getting that work. And today, that showed because as our opponents, it was about five or about five, seven minutes in-ish of the second half, our opposition was tired. Our girls pressed, fought for second chance balls, and had more energy all the way through the entire match. And it showed because we pulled away. I think we scored a goal on a set piece, which was, was, was brilliant, brilliantly ran. I mean, that was a beautiful set piece. And then what they did was they realized, hey, because we're winning, we shouldn't stop playing. They themselves were intelligent enough to know, okay, we got to keep going. The intensity of our press for 10 and 11-year-old girls was amazing. And some of these girls on the, um, on, the op on the opposition were a lot bigger than our forwards. And actually, no, not even just the forwards. That they were almost pretty much, as far as heights concerned, they were. They had a, They um, they had the advantage there. But our girls that didn't, it didn't phase them because they outworked them and they outlasted them. And that that's big because that in football, that's a big part of it too is the effort and conditioning. And the girls carried that intensity and that effort into the match in the second half when it counted. And you could tell because they started to figure out that the opposition was getting tired and the pressing was just more intense. One of our forwards scored winning the ball off of a press in the opposition, in the opposition's defending half and put the ball in the back of the net. And she was one of the smaller kids in the team, but she plays like she's one of the biggest kids in the team, which is amazing. I absolutely love these girls. They, I love everything about this team. I love the gaffer. I love the number two. And I, I, love, I love where I'm at. But... Back to that, though, that's what it is. So what I do personally, right, when I'm training a player, the way I do things, especially with my younger, so I'm talking about anywhere from U5 to U, to U12, and even with the olders is, so one of my current clients, he's an under 10. The first thing that we do is he goes through a speed ladder and we start building his agility and his, his speed, agility, and his quickness. So the first five minutes of that session, I literally, that's all we're doing. We're doing ladder drills that are age appropriate, of course. He gets done with that. The next thing I do is ball mastery. I'm real big on ball mastery. I just, I've always been. Like, you need to understand how to manipulate the ball and handle the ball. So I have a list of moves that I put together based on age. And what we'll do is he'll dribble. I'll call the moves out. He'll execute the moves. And eventually it advances to where he freestyles. And I let him execute those same moves. Then again, that advances to where I'll put cones down. And then again, that'll advance to him having to beat me by using one of these skill moves at some point in the training session so he's getting touches the most important thing with youth football if you are a youth coach at any level is you have to understand the more touches these kids get the better it is because they will become better players at our training ground we have a rule that the girls always have to dribble the ball so if they're going on a water break guess what they got to dribble their ball because it's about getting touches i do the same thing with my clients water break you're dribbling the ball if I don't tell you to have that ball at, at your feet, the ball needs to be at your feet. And that's, that's how I do that. I start, like, my whole thing is starting with ball mastery. Then I start, you know, working with, um, I think the client I'm working with now, one of my youngers, we're working with first touch, developing first touch, how to get, how to get, the, how to get your first touch, a good first touch, and how to get your head up. Because a lot of things with the youngers is they like to stare at the ball. And that was actually for me personally, because I'm still playing too. That took me a minute to figure out, hey, your fucking head needs to be up so you can see where you're going. So at the younger levels, I 
that's what I try to train. Like, hey, see the ball, but your head's got to come up because football is played with your head up. And these are things that the Federation's not big on because they're so worried about developing tactically astute players, which I understand. I get that. But the technique has to be there because in order for me to be tactically astute and know what space that I have to move into, know what position I have to move into with and without the ball, I need to make sure that I have proper technique on how to get my head up, scan the area, find those pockets of space, receive a pass properly, open my body properly, and make the pass properly. Because we were using um, passing and crossing as an example. So the way I do my individual client sessions is when I first get a client, we'll have like a Zoom meeting and I'll figure out where they're at. Then the first session that I offer is usually free for me to get a feel of what they need. Then I go back and I basically construct a comprehensive lesson plan, if you will, and what I think they need to work on. And then I progress the drills thereafter. And I've, I've had success like that. And I think that's what the Federation needs. There needs to be a way to teach. There needs to be balance, I guess, is what I'm saying with this. If you're going to teach coaches to play, practice, play, that's fine. I'm told as I'm going through this licensing, as I'm going up the ladder with my licensing, that we'll see this all the way to the um, license that I'm trying to achieve, which in the United States is an A, advanced A youth, which would allow me to coach a under 23 side. And there's nothing wrong with the model, but you still you still have to be able to get the technique down so that when they start getting to U16, U18, and if they stick with it on the higher levels, you are going to see more technical training, more technical training and exercises at a training session because that's just the way it'd be. Because I know that I've watched professional training sessions. And I'm going to use the San Diego Loyal, for example, the local USL championship team here in San Diego. And that's usually how they do things. They'll come out to the pitch. They'll do their, their dynamic warm-up. They do their technical work. They move on to small-sided games. Then they work on their tactics. And I think that's where we have to find the balance to where we can apply that to the youth so that America could develop fine players. Because we've, I've said in our previous podcast, Regardless of how I feel about the American players, the fact of the matter is motherfuckers are doing well in Europe because they've left their comfort zone and they're going places to develop. So that should tell you something. Where the dis- where where are we having the disconnect? Why can't we, and Alex and I talk about it a bunch, why can't we develop players here the same way that Pulisic has been developed in Europe, the same way that McKinney's been developed in Europe? Um, Josh Sargent, who still needs a little work, but I think he's going to be pretty good. It's It's... You have to give the coaches more tools and not be so so strict in a sense. Because I almost feel when I go to these courses is they're trying to strip a coach's identity. And that was something I struggled with till I stopped honestly giving a fuck. So I sat down and I was like, you know what? I got to treat this like the military. Let me play their game and let me use that knowledge to apply it to my coaching. Because like you said, one style is not going to make you successful. It's how you adapt to the players. And how you develop them. And especially at the youth, where I'm at in the youth level, like at this age, we're going to play them at different positions. And I understand that. That's good for them too as they get older because me personally as a coach, when I'm, when I'm doing team coaching, that's why I usually like the players that can play more than one position. Because that offers me flexibility and you develop, in my opinion, a better player. Who doesn't love a fucking player that can do everything? It's not just that. Even if you've got a certain player that can, you know, 
if you've got a winger that's not quite doing it and then they've got, you've got a centre mid and they can swap or wingers that can swap sides, mm-hmm. it will cause different problems for the opposition fullbacks and their defence. Because if you had a, let's say you've got a left winger who's predominantly left footed and they're not cutting in and they're trying to put crosses in, go down the line every time, then that's going to be worked out. But if you've got a player who's stronger on both feet and you put them over there to cut inside or they can go, you know, it can go to the, go to the line or cut inside, then that gives the, full, the fullback a problem yep. because now they don't know what you're going to do. And obviously, some players can put the in-swing and crossing on their right foot, or they can put the out-swing and crossing yep. on the left. They can drive into the box and shoot. It opens up so many more options, but just by changing one thing. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, when you get players that can play multiple positions, it usually tends to tear defenses asunder because it, it will create confusion. So, like, you and I have both played this game. Well, I'm still playing. And that's what I've learned just based on my playing experience. I am two-footed. Like, I am a nightmare for motherfuckers that I play for. And I'm not bragging, but it's the truth. I'm two-footed, and I can run. And I notice that when I start doing that, I start giving, and I play, for everybody that doesn't know, I play, I play defense. I play, usually I play as, an, as a fullback on the outside. Or sometimes at my, what I feel is my natural position as a wingback. And I figured out, I was like, the best way to frustrate the opposing side, and it's the same thing I teach my kids, is when you start, I start going at that opposing winger. Because most attacking players don't want to defend, especially my age at this level. Motherfuckers don't want to run. Wingers just want to sit at the halfway line and wait for the ball to come in. And I start giving them problems because I'm, one, I'm two-footed, and two, for the most part, I can read the game pretty well to where I can find that space if I'm attacking. And if I'm defending, I can close the space. So, and the fact that I also can play other positions, I can play in the midfield. I don't prefer it. And I'm not that great at it, to be honest, unless I'm at what I consider to be my natural position, which is a wingback. But that's what I try to tell the kids. I've, I'm a decent footballer because I'm able to just understand things better and play multiple positions. I'm not the greatest footballer ever, but I have enough understanding to know that technique is big and that I can play multiple positions, which helps my team. And I, you've played football too. I think you said you've played every position on a bloody football pitch, if I remember right. Yeah, I, I played goalkeeper to striker, both sides of fullback, both wings, both everywhere in midfield. So yeah, I played fucking everywhere. So I mean, I, you know how valuable it is from your own personal experience. Yeah. Like, if defenders like, oh, Ash is in the midfield today. This is going to be easy. Oh shit! Now he's a winger. Oh shit! Now he's a fucking defense. Like, it causes issues. Like you, I am. Like you, I'm two footed, but I've, my primary position was usually left back. But there were times when I would go up and play striker or I'd play centre attacking midfielder. And because sometimes that helps having that defensive dance as well because you can win the ball from the front. Because, you know, defenders, the main thing you're taught is positioning, tackling, you know, reading the game. And if you can do that from the front of the game, you can win the ball higher up the pitch by playing in a different position, but still having the attributes from playing in another position. I mean, when I've played centre mid, or it's obviously centre mid, you need to tackle anyway. But when you played cam, it's more about creation. But yep. when you can win the ball back when they're trying to play out from the back, which I, you know, I've been in that situation when, where, you know, they like Jorginho does for Chelsea, he'll just sit in front of the defence and just wait for the ball. I've had to, I've played against people who have done that, and you just run in and snatch the ball off them before they know what's hit them because they're not expecting it. And then you can either, you know, then you've got a shot, a goal, you can pass it on in a better position. And just by having that skills from playing in a previous position, you have a new tool that you can unlock for, your, for the, t- the benefit of the whole team. Mm-hmm. 
I think for coaching too, it helps if you play. You don't have to play professionally, but if you've just played at all, I think it helps too because I find that I relate to my players better. There's another thing about coaches. It's not, it's not a requirement to have played because coaching is something that if you love it enough, like I wake up and the first thing on my mind is fucking football. I'm, like this morning I woke up and I'm like, all right, how are we going to attack these fuckers? Tonight, I'll probably go to bed and be like, I'm part of these fuckers. It's just always football. But here's the thing, though. When you understand the game, you're coached well, and you're, you're working on your technique as a player, things will go very askew real quick for the opposition. And if you're a player, like we have a player on our, in our side who I coached last season. She was in my under-12 side. And she's in a under 12 rec side. She's now playing club club ball. And I have the pleasure of working with her again. Great little girl, great vision, can pick a pass. But it, it, it's the technique. But the fact that this little girl today did not come off the pitch because she can play center back, because she can play outside back, because she can play in the midfield. And it doesn't even matter if she's out wide in the midfield or if she's a cam or a CDM. And she can attack. That little girl is valuable. And all the coaches know it. Because she understands the game. And I also want to put it out there, too, that I think coaches need to encourage the youth to go play multiple sports or play sports that are similar to football. Like, I know futsal, and I tell everybody in America this shit, if you want your kids to be technically sound and get experience refining technique, if they can't work with a coach, or even if they could work with a personal coach, go play futsal or go play indoor football. My game outdoor got so much better playing indoor. I haven't played futsal yet. I'm dying to. But playing indoor where it's five aside, it's confined. You don't have much space to run. You learn how to work in tight spaces. You learn how to be quicker. You learn how to read faster and think faster because in indoor, you don't have time. It's similar to futsal in that regard. Like, there's not much space. You got to fucking work. You got to be quick. I've played five aside. Um, obviously not professionally, but we play with a thumb. But even then, you can't. There's no chip through balls over the top mm-hmm. because you just haven't got the space to run into. It is about quick thinking because that five aside is intense. You know, you, if you, you you think for too long, your ball's gone. Yeah. And like you said, with five aside, it's quick passing, quick movement. You know, it's not fast. It's not running fast. It's running cleverly and getting into the right mm-hmm. position. Which and th- th- then the goals, obviously, five aside goals are wider rather than taller. So then it's a prop, which also will improve your finishing into corners. For when you yes. play a proper game, you'll like you, you'll learn how to aim for the corners rather than kicking it straight to the goalkeeper or putting the ball around the goalkeeper, or like you see in real football when centre when strikers use defenders as a post and they curl it around them, so they kind of use them. Mm-hmm. You could do that in five aside, and when you get the goalkeeper face with you, if you're one on one, you do the same sort of thing because you've been learning how to finesse the ball into a corner. Because in five aside, my tactic was always right. The goals are wider, and it's more about placement than power, which again comes with technique. Yep. So I love playing indoor. I love playing the indoor five aside. I will enjoy playing futsal as soon as I can find a, a league out here. But when you play in those in those environments, you become more tactically astute because you start to learn where the spaces are. Because like you said, there's not enough, in five aside. You don't have much time. And then as you get more experience, it translates to the outdoor game because then you're more easily able to befuddle your opponents because you're thinking a step ahead, maybe even two steps ahead because you're used to working in smaller spaces. What has improved my game personally 
is having started playing indoor football and then going to the outdoor game. So anytime a parent comes to me and is like, hey, what's a good thing to keep my kids both healthy, well-conditioned, and to get better? I'm like, go play indoor. Go play indoor or find them. We also have seven aside here. Go find something like that because you, you, can't, you can't hide an indoor and you can't hide, let's say, in the smaller-sided games. You know what I'm saying? You can't hide in a 7v7. You can't hide in five-a-side. I think it's good for goalkeepers as well because it teaches them, um, obviously, as someone who's played goalkeeper, the one thing you have to know is where you are on your line at all times without having to look mm-hmm. each second. You need to know how close you are to your near post, your far post. You need to know when to come for crosses. And in five-a-side, you have a lot more ground to go. So you need to position. If you're going to dive left, because you haven't got to worry about height in five-a-side, the goal's are smaller and wider. Yep. So it's more about, you know, getting down quickly or positioning yourself for the shot. And that's probably a lot harder in five-a-side because, you know, your whole, I've been in the five-a-side goal. You can't cover the whole thing. You just can't. But um, if you position yourself properly and then you move, obviously it's about your movement. You, you know, you take a step before you dive, you're going to cover that corner. But it's all about where you have to shoot and then you come out and close the ball down. And it teaches goalkeepers more about their angles as well, of how to tighten angles. Because when they play, like you said, when they play a real game and you've got someone coming in at a diagonal or they're coming in from the edge of the box and they try to shoot, if you, the quicker you get to them and the bigger you make yourself, the harder it's going to be for them to find an angle. The best thing about playing indoor that I learned as a defender was it taught me how to close angles better when I translated to the outdoor game. Because it's 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 a um, it's a condensed space the indoor, so they're not gonna have much space, and I don't have much margin for error. Like if I don't close down properly and I get the angle wrong, there's gonna be a shot on goal, and then whatever happens happens after that. Indoor greatly aided in my development, and that's why I tell the parents get your kids in some indoor. Watch um, in the United States we have a league, and it's not well known because. It's it's a niche, I guess you can say. Watch the MASL, which is the Major Arena Soccer League. Those guys in that league, a lot of them have actually play futsal for their country. And they come out and indoor and just fuck shit up. My whole thing is like my message as far as that part of coaching and developing players is go have your child play another sport, whether if it's related to football or not, because there are other things that will translate to whatever they want to do. In this sense, we're talking about football. So basketball is good hand-eye coordination. Baseball bores me to death, but it's good hand-eye coordination. And then eventually, if the child comes back and they want to make football their thing, they can take some of those things and apply it. And as far as playing indoor and, you know, smaller-sided games, that also helps because you got to think quicker. And it teaches the biggest issue at at this age group that I have is playing football with your head up. You know, for me, growing up, I played so many different sports. Football was my main thing, but I played rugby, cricket, basketball, ultimate frisbee. I played everything that I could that was available. And although not directly, like, but the fitness and playing those extra sports and, you know, it was something as much as cricket, which is, like you said again, hand-eye coordination if you're fielding because you need to be in the right place to catch the ball when it comes. Rugby, more of a physical game, you know, more about physical strength. But that still has a place in football because if you're running with the defender and you can put your shoulder into them, you know, if it's Greenish, you'll fall on the floor and cry. But or Neymar. Let's not forget Neymar. If it's Neymar, then the rest of the game would be spent him rolling around the length of the pitch. 
But that's the thing. If you can get ahead of them and just use your shoulders and slightly edge them off the ball, then you're going to have the advantage. So there's so much that comes with these sports playing more than one because you'll learn different things that might not be 100% relevant, but there will be something that is relevant. Yep. I tell them, um, so I have a 13-year-old niece. Is she 13 or 14? She's 14, sure. excuse me. She's 14. Say it's your niece. <laughs> She's 14. So she likes football, but skateboarding is her thing. But she still likes to play football every now and then. And I encourage her to do the skateboarding because skateboarding helps her football. Because when she does play football, she's actually a keeper because she's, she's pretty tall for her age. It's a decent height. But some of that crazy shit she does with skateboarding translates the quick feet, the moving fast. Just it can make her very skillful and she can use a lot of it would translate to her when she does decide that she wants to play when she's in goal and then there's you know she learns how to she learns and demonstrates like a deft piece of footwork as she's trying to block a shot she can see things better her head's always up so i'm like yeah that's just a general thing like encourage especially at the youth level i can't stress enough encourage them to go play other sports or sports related to football if that's their thing because you will develop a more all-around player like that. And I'm just talking on where I'm at right now at the youth level. Um, obviously, for the last segment of the podcast, we'll talk a little bit about analysis, which um, I do love. I'm not going to lie. I love analyzing things and working out how to get at teams, how to be better. Um, so for me, when I, when I watch a football game um, or I watch highlights of a football game, I, I just focus on one player or one aspect of the game. So sometimes it's a defender, sometimes it's a centre mid. And I just watch them and you can recognise a pattern. And if you watch them enough, you can see what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. And this is when you can start, this is when you prove yourself as a coach. Because if you can master this skill, then you can work out, you know, how a player can improve. So I use Liverpool as, a, as an example of this. Because obviously over the last couple of years they've been easy to watch, and I know I've also watched Chelsea, but just to be non-biased here for a moment, because I'll use Liverpool. Um, if you look at Liverpool and you look at their back four, and Trent Alexander-Arnold defensively is their weak link, and Liverpool fans may be upset with that, but in all seriousness, it's true. Um, he obviously going forward is a different kettle of fish. He's very good going forward, but he leaves that space in behind. Now, if you look at Liverpool, a lot of people get in at them. Sometimes you can counter-attack when their fullbacks are high up the pitch, or they'll play down that right-hand side. Sorry, the team's left, but obviously Liverpool's right. And they'll play in between the right-back and the centre-back, because that's where a lot of space is. Now, obviously, Liverpool last season weren't the team they were, obviously, because of the injuries they had at centre-back. and feels like I think it was 18 different centre-back lineups last season, which is insane to me. But at the same time, you have to think on the flip side, Liverpool's attacking. They get their fullbacks high. They play for crosses. They overload the box with Salamani and Firmino. And you can't usually catch them out because they're midfielders. Though they're not goal getters, they work their asses off for that team. And most of them will just sit and hold the position. So if they are counted on, then they can get back quickly. And when you look at this in certain ways, you can see basically this is how Liverpool's system is. Attacking high stamina fullbacks. They'll get crosses in, which allows Mane and Salah to go close to Firmino. And Firmino, 
isn't a great striker, I don't feel. But what, what he does do well is he gets those short passes off in tight areas to Salah and Mane, which then creates goals. So I'd say Firmino is basically probably should play as a centre-attacking midfielder rather than a striker. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes he plays in a false nine, I believe. It just depends on the day and the opponent. He does. I think we've seen him, too, go into that role when they've had injuries as well. I mean, I don't think he's a terrible player. I just think he needs to add more goals to his game. Because if you look at Timo Werner, who gets so much stick, you know, create 27 goals and, oh, he's not good enough, he's not good enough. But Shit, that's a bunch. That's a load of horse shit that exactly. people say that, that he's not good enough. Go. This is what I tell people, too, about at about analyzing shit, and I actually learned I've this. I've actually got something on this about Timo Werner as well. I've got something on this. I learned this from you, actually. You didn't say it, but I forgot what you said, but it triggered it in my head. Get your fucking eyes off the football and watch that individual player when they're off the ball, and people will see. Timo Werner does a fuck ton of fucking work that is not only advantageous to us as a side, but actually to his game because he does give defense. He doesn't have to have the ball at his feet to give a defense a fucking headache. That's why I, I, I get, I get aggravated. Like, I sincerely and genuinely get fucking pissed off, like vehemently pissed off that some people are like, Werner was a waste of money. Go fuck, take your eyes off the football, get fucking educated, and then watch what this man does when he's off the ball. And then maybe you'll come back and talk some fucking sense. That's just well, me, though. What I'm going to say is, for anyone who doesn't believe the watching off the ball thing, rewatch the Champions League final about 10 seconds before Havertz scores the goal. You look where you watch Timo Werner because he runs out to the left flank and Diaz has to go with him. Then there's a whole bunch of space in that mm-hmm. centre of defence. John Stones doesn't know what Kai Havertz is going to do, so he can't move because if he goes out, there's even more space. Mason Mount makes himself space to play that inch-perfect pass into Kai Havertz. And the rest is history. And this isn't just me being a Chelsea fan. It's just logic. You look at a player off the ball. Werner's run. Diaz has had to go with him. So there's two players. Werner's occupying the fullback and Ruben Diaz, who was arguably the best centre-back in the Premier League last season. You then look at the space that Mount has to play that pass because there's no central defensive midfielder in there that's closing him down. And he's already gone past one. Now all he has to do is play a perfect pass into Havertz. And just the thing about this, Mount played that pass with the perfect weight so Havertz could run onto it. And like that, that comes back to your technique argument because if he hit that pass too short, the defender cuts it out. Hits it too hard, it's in the goalkeeper's hands. But he hits it with the perfect weight, Havertz can run onto it so he doesn't break his stride, goes around Edison and has an empty net to tap in. And that all stems from Timo Werner's run. Yep. It is... It is so funny because people are always quick to chastise without sitting there and looking at stuff. And truth be told on this podcast, I have no problem saying that Ash is probably plays, plays a bigger part in my development as a coach than he thinks he does. Some of these conversations that we have off air, like I have legitimately applied and it's fucking worked. So, so y'all know, once again, let me just say this because he's not going to say it. This man has a massive brain and his analytical comprehension of things, not just with football, but with other things in life that he and I talk about, is fucking astounding. Just too kind. Uh, and that's genuinely me being serious, because 
there was a lot that I've taken and applied to my coaching. That's what I'll say about coaching too. If you don't have an open mind and you're not willing to learn, you will never develop as a coach. Like it's not going to happen. And that's applicable even for life even. The thing with analysis is it's just recognizing patterns. And if it's, if it's a pattern that's going against you, so, okay, if it's a winger that is getting past your fullback nine times out of ten, and then you, the pattern you have to break there is you have to get the fullback to stop the winger, whether it's a better positioning, whether they work on, you know, speed training, because people want to know this, but if you speed, you can get make yourself faster. It's just about effort and pure determination. Like, obviously, some players aren't naturally fast, and that's okay. But if you really put the effort in, then you can increase your speed. Like, you know, Usain Bolt didn't start out running bloody 100 meters in 10 seconds or 9.56, whatever it was. And he didn't start out that quick. He had to work together and push himself. And so maybe the fullback would have to do that. Maybe they need to get a bit stronger to knock them off the ball. Or maybe it's a technical thing. They have to tackle better. Mm-hmm. And but once you recognize this, it's like seeing a problem. Once you know what the problem is, you can find a solution for it. But on the flip side, if you've got a player that, on the flip side, that's your player that keeps going past their defender, you're going to encourage them to do it more because it creates attacking opportunities for you. And of course, if that player then gets caught up in with a defender, there's more space in the middle because that player takes, like, like with Timo Werner, the centre-back's going to be drawn out to help and that creates space in the middle for an attacking midfielder or the other winger or another striker, depending on whatever formation you're playing, to get the space and try and test the goalkeeper. It, football, football is very much like chess. It's all about finding the right spaces to move in, the right time to attack, and the right time to just... How do I want to say it? Finding the right space to move into, knowing when to be aggressive, and knowing when to hold off a little bit. Football is like the closest thing to fucking chess. It's mind-blowing. Because it's literally, just... it is a chess game. Like you, As far as tactics and, and, analytic, and analytics, like you said, it's literally the same way you do in chess. You, know, you try to figure out and decipher not your opponent's next move, but rather what are their patterns. And it's the same thing in football. Like you brought up with uh, Alexander-Arnold earlier. Yeah, defensively, he's a liability. But going forward, he'll cause your problems. And it's all about and, how you go about a, doing that. And for Klopp, obviously, he'd have to balance that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, they couldn't, they, they wouldn't play a back five because it doesn't suit the players they've got. So, but with Liverpool, they're so good at getting forward and getting the ball into Salamani and Firmino. And you know, usually when Van Dijk's there, he is good enough to you know block the ball. But of course, there's going to be times when he can't do that, and that's where you have to kind of balance what Trent's doing. And obviously, yep. that's that's Klopp's problem. It's not mine to solve. But for me, depending on how the game's going, you just want, you know, you probably want Salah to maybe come back and help out a little bit. Just to, so when Trent goes back, get get Salah back a little bit, especially if you're playing a dangerous side. Because having those numbers back, even if you put a foot in and it's a block or a deflection, it's better than conceding a goal. But of course, there, are, there will be wingers, like you said earlier, that don't want to come back and defend. No. They just want to get their goals, get the glory. Pretty much, and that, and that works for some teams because they'll have other players that will do that job for them. Mm-hmm. So if Generally, if you have hardworking players in your midfield, is what I've noticed. If you have that, if you have a hardworking midfield, then this is just me. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Generally, if you have a hardworking midfielder, 
those sides usually have those wingers that can get away with that because they know that there's somebody that's going to pick up the slack. Well, Liverpool fit into that as well. You think Jordan Henderson, who was it, Genie Wijnaldum last season and Fabinho, yeah. those three work their asses off. Like, they don't score goals, but they will work their asses off for the team. They kind of sacrifice themselves in a way so that Mane, Salah and Firmino can express themselves. Um, it's the same with Ronaldo at Juventus. He's not going to come back and defend. He's going to be getting the goals at the other end. Messi at Barcelona. Messi kind of just has a free role. Do what you want. He'll get you goals and assists. But the other, and that's where the team dynamic comes into because there will be players willing. I mean, at Chelsea, I'm not really, Ziyech should be the one I'd imagine that doesn't really come back and help out. No, he doesn't. But you look at Timo Werner, He's fucking everywhere. Like he wants to win the ball back. He'll he'll Mason run his Mount. fucking house. Yeah, Mason Mount, Kante. Mason Mount works his fucking dick off. All match, start to finish. And Golo Kante, who I'm starting yeah. to think is not even human, I'd lick his face. I love him. Aspie the Equator as well works pretty hard, I'd say. Aspie for being up there in age actually works pretty I think they all actually we have a bunch of hard working We have a good players squad in that, that side. Because I know for me personally, like I was saying earlier. I'm not the most technically sound player out there, and I'm working on that. But the one thing I owe the feedback that I've always gotten from managers when I've played in a in Sunday league because we have managers in Sunday league and in other places where I've had a manager, the one thing that I've always been told between the manager and teammates is my work rate is crazy. For as old as I am, because I know Father Time is undefeated. I'm 35. I'm not getting any fucking younger. <laughs> I'm in pretty good shape for my age. So one of the things that I do bring to a side is that, like, I could cover every blade of grass, and it takes a minute for me to get tired. And that's, that, that's valuable. So I don't mind. Me personally, because my, my, my whole thing is I like defending. I like it when a winger fucking thinks he's going to get past me, and then the next thing they know, they look down, and the fucking ball is not, is not on their feet because I done fucking do what I do. Or I frustrate them and they can't get crosses in or they can't make those runs because I'm literally just always there because I make a point to be a pain in the fucking ass. Because scoring and attacking isn't my thing. I'll do it when I have to and if it's asked of me. And so for me, like I don't mind if somebody, if one of my teammates, especially if they're more forward players, if they just want to hang around, I'm like, cool, I got you. Just let me know what fucking part. Just let me know where you want me to put the ball. That's all I need to know. I'll do all the fucking dirty work and I'll communicate with my midfielders to see how we want to work this out. Just let me know where you want the ball or how to get the ball to you and I'll do the fucking rest. I'll do all the running. I don't, I don't give a fuck. But yeah, believe, believe it or not, when I played, I was a very defensive-minded left-back. Like I didn't really want to go forward. Not in that position because I didn't feel like it was necessary. Mm-hmm. Because we played a 4-3-3 so we had the midfielder yep. on this side and we had the winger as well. So I would just stay back. And I mean, if, if we was really needed a goal, then of course I'd go forward. But oh, yeah, usually I, I just played, a, which is old school because fullbacks these days, they don't stay back anymore. But no, no for, me, I, I kind of, for me, I love the defensive side of the game. So I, I'd love to stick, oh, especially when it was raining, just fly tackles galore. Oh, um, Lord. <laughs> but for me, I was a very defensive minded defender. But when I played up front, I would literally hang around. It would be opposite. I would, I would wait on the halfway line because you can't be offside in your own half. So I would wait on the halfway line for a ball, and I was quick. I was quick, so I could probably, if they were up for a corner, I just stand on the halfway line and wait for a goal. And the goalkeeper knew I was quick, and he could just play a long ball. And if I could bring it down, I had a one-on-one. 
you like playing in the rain, so you didn't mind no, being I... completely bedraggled post-match in dirt and mud. And... Not, not me, bro. I hate the fucking rain. <laughs> Lost a, used to love oh, playing, I'm playing anyway. Not a fan of playing in the rain. Playing in the rain gives me nostalgia. Just love it. I like playing when it's fucking cold outside. I don't know oh, why, but when it's cold, no, which in San Diego, <laughs> in San Diego, cold here is like 60 degrees and these people lose their mind. Um, in Colorado, when I lived in Colorado, when I lived in New Jersey, shout out to my home state, Jersey, I love you. Um, yeah, I liked it when it got, when I say cold, I mean like 30 degrees Fahrenheit and below. Somewhere, actually, let me, let me rephrase this. Somewhere between 30 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit, I kind of like that. Nice and cool weather, and then you just go. I, I can't do the rain. And I, wait, I like windy weather, but not when I'm playing. Because Lord knows the wind, what it does to the ball is just wild. <laughs> the only problem with playing in the, in, in, in the cold ring in goal is those gloves, goalkeeper gloves, they're not warm. So that when you're playing outfield, you're in pro- proper gloves. But when you're in goal, you just can't. And there were days when, my fin- when I played keeper, my fingers were stinging because it was cold. Mm. But I'm like, but I've got a fucking job to do here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's being in goal. I imagine that that's rough. That at least field players in cold weather, you get warm eventually. If you're if you're running, that is. Well, I used to wear sweatpants in goal. I was one of those. Ah. Yeah, I was one of those. Like I didn't mind. And I, I was one of those that had my shorts. Uh, used to have my socks pulled up quite a bit as well. And I wore nine at left back, which I thought was brilliant. That's that. That's funny. I've always worn, as far as numbers and me playing. I think the. My favorite and preferred number, and I usually always get it, is 29. I've worn 29, 20, 14, and 10. And 10 I wore it indoor, actually. But 29 by far is my favorite shirt number, and I usually almost always get it. I don't know if it's not a common number for a defender, but, I mean, that's my number. I'm emotionally attached to it, sir. Mine's 25, so whenever I'm playing sports games, like if it's F1, my car is 25 on it. If it's football and I'm playing with my own self, it's 25. Um... So yeah, so it's 25 for me. Why 25? Just let's, before we end the podcast, just give the listeners I think it's a just peek into our like, mind. Just, I think it's because I was born on the 25th and I just really like the number. That's like, fair. No, like, secret hidden meme and it's like, oh, you know. But yeah, I think it's because I was born on the 25th and I just always like that number. Yeah, you're going to be 25 too next ah, year. Yeah, well, don't remind me. <laughs> um... Yeah, I was just I just always wondered twenty five. So twenty five is your prefer. I wore that once in a preseason friendly match. And I actually played pretty well that day. We didn't um, have kit number twenty five when we were playing. So I think I had one in I have one in goal, obviously nine at left back. I wore six two five a few times, and I think I wore every number out there. Yeah, I've worn all, all the numbers I I mentioned earlier were the ones I've I've worn. Ten was indoor. I've only worn that once. But my go-to is always 29, and if it's not, then it's 20. You know, before we end this podcast, I just want to end on something hilarious. Um, Go for it. I bought myself a sausage roll earlier from the store, and I left it in the fridge, and my brother has just texted me. And he's like, oh, yeah, I stole your sausage roll because I didn't have any dinner. I was like, oh. (laughs) Siblings are great. (laughs) It's just like, I just stole it. And there's nothing I can do because he's not here. So... Motherfucker. So on that note, we're going we're to end the pod as Ash has to do some sorting out as far as getting some food. Um, 
So I'll just wrap up with the usual house business. You can email us via at on the pitch pod at outlook.com. We're on Twitter at, at on the pitch pod one. On Facebook, we have an actual page for the podcast. It's the On the Pitch podcast. You can like and follow that page. We have a group by the name of On the Pitch, which you can join. Of course, to join their three membership questions, please, 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 please answer all three questions in proper English, and you will be accepted. That page is great. We have great discussions, debates, banter. We post news. We talk about a whole bunch of stuff i absolutely love that group it's great it's open to a lot of people there are rules so read those because if you are to get accepted don't mess up don't mess up our vibe that we got going there yeah it's open to all fans it's just it honestly it's like it's a very chilled out group we've got uh united fans liverpool fans uh chelsea fans probably a few others in there but i don't know because there's quite a few members at the moment um but yeah it's just like we will make fun of each other's teams in a lighthearted way. There's no abuse or anything. It's just jokes. So, you know, come along, sign up. And it's a good time. You can post. We have, we have like many little questions in there as well, like like what if scenarios and, you know, every now and then we'll do lineups and stuff, like our favourite lineups or lineups from a certain continent. You know, we've done that before. Actually, we should probably do some more of that, actually, thinking about it. We should. What we're basically trying to say is it's a great group. So it, it is worth your time and it's, it's worth being in that group. It's great. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, we wish you a good morning, a good afternoon, and a good night. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. <laughs>